You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. So, guys, really good. It's good to be here with all of you today. Welcome to Kingsway. If you're visiting with us, we're super glad you're here. We're in a series going through the book of Luke. So we're like in the middle of it. You've missed stuff happening, but that's okay. Today, we'll connect with all of you. We're talking about a cultural topic today that's so relevant. People use today's text all the time and don't even know where it came from or whatever. So we're going to fill you in a little bit today. Before we get into today's message, I thought I'd start with a story that helps lay the foundation. So when I was a young man, I grew up in the 80s. Even though I hated 80s music, that was the time frame where I was a young man or young boy, I should say, living in my parents' house. And so because of that, Jedis were all the rage. I remember when we would sit around and have that talk that boys would have like, hey, uh, if you could be like one superhero with their powers, which one would you be? And I was like, man, I want to be a Jedi. So it shouldn't surprise you then when um, all the kids left my house one day and I was hanging out with just like one friend from the neighborhood in my house in my basement and I found a lightsaber in the basement. Now it wasn't a toy lightsaber like you have in mind. It was just that when you were a kid, anything could become my lightsaber. Am I right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You got kids? Okay. So my friend and I start sword fighting, lightsaber fighting in the basement. My parents had had a, a, a small finished basement. I don't remember if they finished it or if it came with the house that way, but um, it wasn't super fancy or anything, but there were walls up and carpet on the main parts, and then there were like storage areas. And so anyway, I'm sword fighting, lightsaber fighting with my friend, and I swung it, and I didn't know what it was I was actually playing with, and there was something inside the something I was playing with. Turns out it was a curtain rod, not a lightsaber. Who knew? And... Um, the inside, the smaller curtain rod came flying out, thank God it did not impale my friend, and went through the drywall. Now, when you're eight or nine years old, however old I was at the time, and you have in your mind, like, this is a solid wall. I did not realize that walls weren't solid. I just assumed they're all made of brick. Who knows? I don't know, whatever, right? But I realized now, I really, this really is a lightsaber. I mean, it went right through the wall. But now I have a bigger problem because my lightsaber is in the wall. So I pull it out and there's a hole in the wall. And I remember thinking, maybe I can go to the other side and push it up in there, right? And, it, it, and that didn't work either. So I wasn't 100% sure what to do. And all of my options are before me. Like, do I blame my friend? Because my parents weren't there. Nobody knows. Wait till he leaves, right? I decided to do the one thing I knew was probably the right thing to do. I went upstairs and I told my parents. I remember they were in their bedroom watching TV so, you know how lightsabers are a thing? And, you know, I'm trying to paint the picture. I was so nervous. I thought they were going to kill me. I didn't know what they were going to do. And my parents came down, and they looked at the situation, and they gave a very gentle rebuke and thanked me for telling them. And then they said, Matt, we're going to have to have somebody come out and fix the wall, and uh, you're going to have to pay for it. And I remember thinking, sure, I mean, all I have is your money anyway, so what's... <laughs> what's the difference? I remember thinking, I don't know what it means. And uh, they told me, I'm going to have to do some extra chores. I don't want you to think about this for a second, right? Okay, so I go wash dishes more than I normally would wash dishes. How does that pay for the guy who had to fix the hole in the wall? It doesn't. Really? Does it? My parents are trying to teach me a lesson. But that's going to at least lay a foundation for, I think, some of what we need to talk about a little bit today. All right, so here we go in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. 
Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A couple things. Number one, notice the motive in this gentleman's heart. He wants to what? Test Jesus. Now, that's not necessarily an evil thing. This guy's heart is not the right place. We will see that as we go, but it's not necessarily an evil thing. He is a uh, religious leader. That is his job. He's an expert in the Old Testament. And if somebody shows up and starts teaching about the Old Testament, it's his job to make sure, like, where did you get this information and this training from? There were two major schools of thought in Jesus' day. And so usually what somebody would do is they would say, well, uh, Rabbi so-and-so, Gamaliel says, and then you would know which camp they lined up under based off what they were saying. And their authority came from one of these other rabbis. That's part of what was fascinating about Jesus. When he would teach, he didn't quote other rabbis unless it was to correct them. He would say things like, you've heard it said, but now I say. And that's part of what made the religious elite angry is because when Jesus taught, he taught on his own authority. Who does this guy think he is? He thinks he's better than these other great teachers? You gotta get that part. So he's questioning Jesus. He's a teacher of the law. He's an expert doing his job. And what Jesus does is he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Well, that's an interesting thing because while this guy had an authority position over Jesus, Jesus flipped the script. He never gives up his authority. Does that make sense? He's like, okay, you're here to test me. You're here to question me. Let me ask you a question. How do you read it? And I'll affirm if you're getting it right. That's such an interesting thing he's doing. So <clears throat> the thing that's going on here is that the law that's being referred to is what we call the Old Testament Many uh, Gentiles like us would call it the Pentateuch. The Jewish people call it the Torah, the Torah. It is the first five books of the Old Testament. And that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In those first five books, we get what we call the law. And inside that law, there are 613 laws. There's 613 do's and don'ts. Now, remember, the heart of all of this is the guy wants to know what good he has to do in the world to inherit eternal life. That's the driving cause. I want to know, can I do enough good things? Can I wash enough dishes? Can I fold enough laundry to stand before God one day and God goes, we need that guy on our team? And what Jesus is going to get to in such a Jesus kind of way is the real problem is not how much good I do. I can never do enough good. In fact, in verse 27, he, this guy answers Jesus. Remember, this is the, the teacher talking. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let me see if I can get this right. I wrote this down. Yeah. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19 here. So he takes those 613 laws and he summarizes them into two passages. They're right there. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 6. And he says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, love your soul, with all your mind. Some say with all your strength. And then he goes on in Deuteronomy 6 and says, Teach these things to your kids. But here in Leviticus chapter 19, I think it's verse 18, it literally says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is really, really important because the way this guy is interpreting all of the Old Testament is good. It's accurate. Love God first, love people second. 
Do that and you'll have eternal life. But it brings up a great problem. How do we do it? How are you doing at it? Are you doing well at loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you truly capture every temptation that comes into your mind and not act on it? Do you never spend your money selfishly? How are you doing at uh, judging your neighbor? Ever read the news and find yourself getting angrier than is justified? If not, man, I'd love to take you to lunch and find out your secret. Because <laughs> I'm just telling you, the guy on stage is not doing it as good as he needs to. Jesus says in Luke 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. You will live. Yesterday, um, actually, I think it started on Friday and carried over yesterday, but uh, Friday, um, my wife took my two oldest kids down to Kentucky for a cubing competition. So uh, my two sons are into what's called speed cubing. They take Rubik's cubes. Most people know the Rubik's brand, but it's actually not that. And they solve cubes. My, my, my middle son can solve it in like 30 to 40 seconds. My youngest son does it in about 10 seconds. And I'm only telling you that to brag. And because um, <laughs> I'm a proud dad. So I got to stay home with my, uh, with my youngest son, and uh, we're, we're like two peas in a pod. We're two ADD people chasing each other around, having a blast. It's a great time. But we decided to go out and clear off the driveway so that when mom got home, she could come home to a driveway that's cleared off. And um, so we're out there doing that, and I watched my neighbor, who's a, he's a good man. He's a local fireman. Um, he's a good Christian man. And uh, anyway, he, he's walking his dog, and he comes up. He's already done his driveway, and he comes up the road, and he takes the dog up to the yard, puts him in the backyard, and he grabs a shovel, and he goes over, and he does my other neighbor's driveway for him. And they're an older couple, super sweet, love them to death. And I'm sitting there watching him and going, didn't even cross my mind. We've been neighbors for 14 years, and it didn't even cross my mind. But it crosses his mind because I watch him almost every winter. There's been winters we've gone over and joined him after he started this good thing, loving his neighbor the same way that he loved himself. There's times that he goes over and does their driveway first and then goes over and does his own driveway. Now, I got a million reasons why. I'm crazy busy. I never have enough time. You know, I'm there with my son. I got to do all the things normally my wife and I share the duties of together, and they're all just excuses. There was literally nothing preventing me from taking my son over and helping him. It is an afterthought for me, for him it wasn't. So real quick evaluation of your own life. How are you doing at loving God first and loving your neighbor second? Now let's push it a little bit further. Let's just, wherever you just landed in your answer to that question. In verse 29, but he, this is the man, the religious teacher, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? One thing I want you to get out of this is you've got to pay super, super close attention to your inner motives. I have a sneaky suspicion that anywhere you find a behavior in your life you really want to change, that where that behavior is getting hung up probably has to do with your inner motive. And the reason I say that is what you'll find is if you keep doing something over and over and over again you don't want to do, there's something inside you that's off in some way or another. It's, it's messed up. It's like, well, I'm allowed to do that because they did this. I'm justified to do it. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to get down beneath the 
behavior part of what you're doing down to the motive part of what is driving you because once you change the motive part, the behavior will change also. So Jesus constantly wants to, in you and in me, expose what is down beneath me driving me. Is it my pride? Is it my selfishness? Is it my arrogance? Is it my desire for justice or rage or anger or hurt or woundedness or trauma? Or what is it that's down there so that Jesus can get in, heal that, confront that, deal with that, so that the behavior part of my life is going to change? Now, what Jesus does next, and years ago, I I offended somebody in our church. I want to make really clear. What Jesus does next literally happened. I'm not saying he didn't tell the story, but the story that he told was not necessarily about a real person. It's an illustration. It may or may not have happened. We aren't sure. It's an illustration because Jesus says in reply, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. I wonder what the other half is. And so the man is laying there on the side of the road. He just had everything taken from him, a terrifying, terrifying thing. Now, what happens next is, remember, this is a religious teacher talking to Jesus. Jesus gives an illustration to three different people. You've probably heard this phrase before, the good Samaritan, right? I remember one day I was watching ESPN or Fox News or something, or Fox Sports, I mean, something like that, FS1. And uh, one of the guys on the TV referenced this athlete who was acting like a good Samaritan. That guy could be a Christian. I have no idea. That's not my point. My point is this language is so common in our culture. We have Good Samaritan hospitals and Good Samaritan ministries. We have this all over the place. So people are just used to hearing about it. And they don't even know that it came from Jesus. Jesus is the one who made up the story as a point for us. Here's how the story goes. So the first person walks by and the second person walks by and they completely ignore the man, beat up and left half dead on the side of the road. They just keep walking. But those two people are really important for you to get the story. One is a priest and one is a Levite. A priest is the person who is appointed by God to work in the temple. The priest would serve the people day in and day out in their religious needs, connecting them to God in him, for the person to God and God to the person. They would offer sacrifices. They would teach them the law. It was their job to basically do what I do week in, week out on this stage in many, many ways. Now, every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. The Levites uh, came from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi. That's where it gets its name from. And the Levites worked in service to God. Now, the priests had a very specific duty. They were chosen from among the Levites, but the Levites weren't allowed to own any land. All the other 11 tribes of Israel owned land. Everybody else's job was to support the priests. Oh, I could go so much deeper on that. I have another messages. I don't have time today. It's super cool. But the bottom line of what Jesus is trying to get to is he's simply trying to tell them these two people who should get it the most don't. They know a lot of knowledge. They aren't acting on it. That's why our goal of faith is not just to learn more about Jesus. It's to take everything we're learning and figure out how to apply it. You guys have heard probably, you maybe didn't know it, but 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? In the Bible. And it tells us, there's that creepy voice again. It tells us what's, what love really looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't get angry. You've seen this at weddings. You've seen it on plaques and pictures at Hobby Lobby and Walmart and all over the place. But a lot of people miss the background of what Paul's trying to get to. In that passage, Paul says, 
If I could speak in the tongues of angels, but I have not love, I have nothing. If I could fathom all mysteries, but I have not love, I'm nothing more than a a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. The whole point is, if I could know everything there is to know, but I don't actually act in love, big deal. What does it matter? What is life? What is faith? That's why he concludes, the three greatest things in this world are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Because love makes me do things. That's why Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Samaritans and Jews hate each other. At least they did in that day. I'm not an expert on where it sits today, but in Jesus' day, they hated each other. There's a whole thing I've done in other sermons, unpacking this. Again, don't have time. The short version is this. Samaritans were considered half-Jews by the Jews. In the Old Testament law, those 613 laws, the Israelite people were told, do not intermarry with the other nations. They worship false gods. You will be likely to bring those gods into into our nation. And that is exactly what happened over time. The Samaritans stayed that way, and they never really purified themselves over time and recommitted to staying focused on God. And so the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They, 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 it was terrible, terrible racism of the worst kind you can imagine. In fact, it's been said that Jews, when they wanted to travel to towns and places on the other side of Samaria, would travel all the way around the region, even when the clearest path was directly through. We're not talking about cars where you could just drive through and be 20 minutes longer. We're talking about day's journey in order to avoid those dirty, nasty Samaritans. But yet Jesus, when he sends the disciples out, he tells them, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus targets people living in Samaria. So when Jesus uses his story, again, he's talking to a religious teacher. He's basically saying, your people are more likely to close your eyes and ignore the problem as if it's somebody else's problem to deal with, not mine. I'm too busy. Then I don't know that guy. That's too dangerous. It's too time consuming. It's too much sacrifice. But this guy, who's probably an enemy of that guy, or at least the way they view each other, he stopped and took care of the problem. In fact, he took pity on him. I really wish, I wish the translators who are extremely intelligent and way more educated than me had called me because I would have made a, a different suggestion. But the word there is, has the Greek word splagna in it. And it literally refers to that feeling you get in your stomach when your heart is broken over something. Literally like an aching in your gut. It's the word we use, compassion. The word pity is the best word for definition. If you just look up like in Webster's, what pity means or something like that, Google it later. It actually is a very fitting, but the problem is we use pity sometimes today to be like, oh, I pity him or I pity the fool, you know, or whatever it is. And so, (laughs) gotta be a certain generation again. (laughs) And so the word pity has lost something in translation, I think, from what really is going on here. Verse 34, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So the wine would have killed bacteria, the alcohol in the wine. It would have been to clean it. The oil would have been like a, a salve, something to help soothe the pain and provide some healing. And then he bandaged him up, and he puts him on his own donkey. So now the man is walking. Well, he gets to be carried by the animal. 
There is so much sacrifice going on here that he takes him to in and takes care of him. I think what Jesus is really trying to get to, and I, I'm gonna try to bring all this home, so I'm just, I gotta lay all these pieces out on the table and then we'll put them together like a puzzle, okay? But here it is. To really live means to feel an ache in your gut for others that moves you into action. It's not enough to feel bad and it's definitely not enough to ignore a problem. You've gotta feel bad enough to act. Verse 35, the next day he took up two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Two denarii, a denarii on average was a day's worth of wages for the average common working man. This person probably had more resources, probably a little wealthier. We don't know for sure. It's kind of irrelevant. The whole point is he, he spent his own money and time. He's a businessman. He's probably traveling wherever he's traveling to do business. He stopped whatever he was doing to meet the need. He met the need. Then he said, you take care of him. Here is two full days worth of wages Whatever that covers me, I'll come back. If it took more than that to get him on his feet, I won't even question you. Just tell me what it cost, and I'll take care of it. In other words, he saw it through until it was completed. And here's one of my challenges to you. If you want to honor Jesus, then you've got a plan to be generous with your life and your resources. And the problem in America today is we have a lot of resources, but we don't have very many plans to be generous with them. And so because of that, we find it hard, even when we see a need, to do much about it. That's not true for everybody, but America loves debt. And so right now, if you ran into a legit need, you wanted to take part, you wanted to do something, you wouldn't even know where to start because in order to take part, you'd have to give away somebody else's money. You'd have to take out more debt. And it creates this problem. And in, in about a month, um, so just so you know, nobody come to church in a month. In about a month, when we get to Luke chapter, um, uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus starts to talk a lot about money. And so we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about what Jesus talks about. I'm not going to add to it. I'm not going to subtract from it. We're just going to talk about what Jesus talks about and figure out how to apply these things a little bit better. But this is a good time to get that conviction in your heart and say, what, what would God have me do? What could I do with all God has given me? Well, there's really two components to this. One is individually and then corporately. Like, what do we do as a church? So individually, how do I leverage all that God has given me for his glory? There's a lot of ways you could do that, right? You could be generous to somebody who goes to school with you or work with you or a neighbor, <clears throat> a family member. Keep in mind, these two hated each other. They're enemies. And so maybe God is putting it on your heart to bless somebody really, really irritates you or you really don't like or you really think is evil or wrong or whatever it might be. The more different they are from you, probably the more Jesus is calling you to love them, which is really hard. And it's why it requires the Holy Spirit moving us and stirring in us. Last year, I want to celebrate real quick. So we'll, we'll clap. We'll have a few of these, right? Last year, we had 144 people go and serve locally and globally alongside with our church. 44 people went globally and 100 were sent out locally. Can we just stop and say, isn't that awesome? Yeah. 
We have a trip going to Ireland soon. Um, that one's already closed. We have a trip going to Peru and another one to Mexico. It's not too late to sign up for those. If you go to our website, you can always get whatever information we have to update you on. Trips are usually based off when our partners can get us and whether we have leaders for them. And so, man, go to our website and just reach out and say, I'd, I'd love to get more information. Our local stuff, we're constantly releasing as God moves and stirs in our heart where we are and what do we do about it. I don't have anything specific to promote at this time, but just be a church who is aware that Jesus is doing stuff in the world and he's calling me to do it with him. There's a work that God prepared in advance for us to do. Now remember this, remember this. All of this came out of this question. Which laws must I do to inherit eternal life, right? This is where I have to be very careful and if I had another hour, the other day I was um, preparing something for our staff and I came across this passage. This isn't in my notes. I referenced it last service. I'm just gonna read it to you this service, ready? First Peter chapter one, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb with a blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in his last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and your hope are in him. Okay, what do we make of that? Our salvation is secured by the blood of Jesus. You cannot earn your way to salvation. I had this conversation just recently with a, with a man in our church who's, he's got, he's got some serious stuff he's dealing with and he's asking hard questions. Was I good enough? Am I good enough? If this should be my last things, weeks, months, years before, how will I know? And so I, I simply took him back to when he was in high school and he gave his life to Jesus. And I said, when you gave your life to Jesus the first time, like, what did you do to receive Jesus? And he started telling me stories and you know, he didn't get into a lot of the other things other people got into. And I'm like, I get it, I get it. You were better than everybody else. But did you still need a savior? Well, yeah. Did you ever sin? Of course. Did you always love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Did you ever make a mistake in there at all? Well, of course I did. I get it, right? I get it. So you needed a savior then as much as you need a savior now. You were never saved based off what you do. However, what Peter's trying to get to, and I, I realize he uses colorful, flowery Bible language, and if you aren't familiar with the Bible, it might not make sense. So Jesus secures my salvation, but we are all going to stand before God one day. There will be an evaluation day for every single one of us. And when my life is evaluated, it won't be so I get in. I'm in. I'm in by Jesus. But will he look at me and say, did you love me? What did you do with all I did for you? What did you do with all I gave you, with all my time and resources and everything I blessed you with, your families and your relationships and your connections? And will God evaluate me as generous with my life and resources? Now, that question stings me because I honestly, I wish I could give it all away. Like, I wish I could just live off nothing and give everything I get away. That's not gonna happen, right? That's where in a month, we'll talk through some 
things God says about how can we measure this and have peace with this. But I want you to sit in the question for a little bit. I want you to be uncomfortable and say, can I? Will I? When I stand before God and he evaluates me, will he look at me and say, yeah, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now let me put you in charge of many things. See, my faithfulness here equals my responsibility there in heaven, whatever exactly that looks like one day. So I want to be faithful here so that there he can trust me. If you can trust me here, he'll trust me there. Jesus looks at the religious teacher. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. And keep mercy at your forefront so that when you see a need, you're ready to step in and meet it. Now, that's individually, like, what's God calling me to do? But then there's corporately, like, all of us together. What are we doing? So if you're newer to Kingsway, as I know a lot of you are, uh, about a year ago, <clears throat> we launched something called Relentless Pursuit. And um, you can find more information on our website and uh, get, learn more about what we said. I don't have time to go through all of it. But we challenged Kingsway people, would you consider joining us and committing over a three-year plan to to give extra money so we could do some different things. We had three major categories. One was we're gonna pay down debt. Two was we're going to have to make some um, improvements, significant improvements in this building. And then three was we're going to partner in outreach and in church planting so that we can have more churches doing this all the way to the ends of the earth. I don't have time for all those updates, but I did wanna celebrate, because I don't know if some of you know this, last year, $2.1 million were committed over a three-year span through the Relentless Pursuit campaign, of which we've collected over $500,000. Can we just stop and give God the glory? Yeah. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of things we are working on. Just like if I stood up every week and said, we had another conversation, you'd be bored to death hearing all those details. So we want to try to bring you up to speed every time something big happens and something big is happening. We're super excited. One of these things that we didn't fully know or understand at the moment where RP was happening, God brought it. A lot of this is in real time. In the book of James, it says, no one should say, next year, we're gonna go do this or that. Instead, you should say, if God wills, we're gonna go do this or that. Because there's this humility of realizing God is in control of our plans. So we're always sitting out there, here's the best we know based on what God has told us today. One of the things we started doing is we sat down with DCS, the Department of Child Services, I think, as I hope that's right. And uh, DCS is a government organization that basically takes kids, and anybody makes a report, in their traumatic environment and tries to come alongside them. And we came to DCS, said, what do you need? We don't know if we can help or not, but what do you need? You are overwhelmed with the need in our state and community. What could we do to help? And they begin to tell us that what happens is when a really traumatic environment pops up, they'll have to take sometimes kids out of the home when it's really bad, and those kids don't have anywhere to go. They aren't yet placed into the foster system with a family who's trained up and ready to go. And so they sleep in the office of the DCS workers with cots on the floor. And it's busy and chaotic and not warm or inviting or anything. And one of the families in our church uh, recently got an inheritance and, and said, I want to be a part of that and did that. And then we talked to Plainfield Christian Church, who's writing a check also. We've actually talked to some other churches. I don't know if anybody else is going to come alongside and said, hey, can you also help us get this done as a part of this relentless pursuit as we're trying to figure out all the dollars and make it all work? And I'm just excited to tell you that in the next couple of weeks, we will begin the renovations on that space. Here's an artistic rendering. This is not blueprints, if anybody knows that world, of what it will look like. 
So you can see we've got like a, a storage resource closet. I know you're already thinking, what do they need? I know, I don't know yet. But when it comes time, we will load that up with whatever, diapers or shoes or wet wipes or whatever they need in that space to resource families. There'll be a little office area and there'll be a little bedroom area and there'll be a little family room there. So when the parents need to come in and meet with the DCS worker, we're gonna take two or three of our current rooms and modify them and it's gonna be right next to our indoor playland. So while those kids' lives are falling apart outside this building, they'll be able to be in here and work um, to just get healthier and happier and not have all the chaos and stuff going on in their little worlds. And um, I don't know if you guys realize how rare this is. I've been asking around. I don't know of a single church in the United States doing this, not one. My friend started a business, uh, sorry, a ministry, I should call it a nonprofit, called America's Kids Belong. And his whole vision for it was, how do we take churches and government agencies and stop seeing each other as the enemy, as the Samaritan or the whatever, and start getting them to work together? Because he said, the government, their solution to the problem is right in front of them on the corner of almost every spot in their town, but they see churches as the bad guys and churches are so questioning of government that they won't, it's like, we got to do it our own way. And so I reached out to him and we've been getting coaching from him. And he said, Matt, I, I don't know anybody doing this, anybody. You will be one of one. And my excitement behind that is not so Kingsway could be awesome. It's because I'm hoping that this works so well that other churches start calling us and saying, what did you do? You can imagine the paperwork that goes into pulling this off. This past week, we cleared all the legalities that are standing in the way so that we can start to get the work done. And I'm so excited. Can we just stop and praise God together? Yeah. After last service, I got a private message from somebody. I said I wouldn't share their name, but I would read their quote. And they said, after last service, I wanted to reach out to you for a long time, and I'm sorry that I've actually waited so long. I'm so grateful to have found Kingsway when I was at a low point in my life. My heart is overwhelmed hearing that we are partnering with DCS. As a child, my siblings and I were taken by the state on three separate occasions, and I cannot put into words how scary that was as a child. Knowing that our church is filling a need and loving these kids brings me to tears. Thank you for everything you do, my heart and soul so full. Amen. But that's not the only one. In the next week or two, there's going to be some small inconvenience for some of you parents in the room, as we are also beginning this partnership with PLA, Pathways Learning Academy. There's another church on the north side who has a partnership with them, and we're really excited about this. Part of our studying found that 98% of the Daycares and similar in our community were at capacity. And so we just said, well, the one thing we got is space. We just need dollars to renovate that space. What would it look like for us to do that? And so Pathways is coming in here. And uh, here's an artistic rendering. It's just a one room. And for the littlest kids, as you can imagine, you could kind of see some beds up there. And you got a little carpet area for the, for the kids. The movement center. I love that. And um, you could just kind of see a, a cozy center. <laughs> you got all these different things. So this is just an artist's rendering of what it would look like. Our kids team has already been at work to work with 
pathways to find out how do we build bridges to these families? So they're coming here. They may or may not know Jesus at all. How do we build bridges to introduce them to Jesus, to love them the way that God has loved us, to be generous with our time and our needs? Some of you have already been asking questions like, hey, well, they need employees. I, I don't know any of that. That has nothing to do with me at all. I'm so glad other people are managing that. But what we will need at some point is just people who love kids and are great storytellers because we're going to come in and get to talk about Jesus and love them in Jesus' name. And I'm so excited for this partnership. And again, parents, some of you will be, it'll just be awkward as we're moving you around. We got to start to renovate space a little bit. So just give us a little bit of grace and just realize it's a small sacrifice we're all making so that we can practice everything Jesus told us to practice. Can we just stop and celebrate all that God is doing? Amen. I'm going to keep you updated as we go. Next week is going to be super exciting because I'm going to look back and celebrate all that God did in our midst last year as we look forward to next year. But I want to end today with this passage, Luke chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus looks at the man and he says, okay, you really believe loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what inherits eternal life. Go and do likewise. Don't make excuses. Go and do likewise. I just want to call you into a space right now and allow Jesus to call you up into whatever he's asking you to do in this life. I've been hoping and praying that this message would make some of you uncomfortable. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you really want to avoid. You would rather go to the other side of the road and avoid them. Jesus is going, nope. Or maybe there's somebody in your life, you're like, God, I want to help them, but I know, I get it. It takes time, it takes sacrifice. And I thank God for grace, man, because I don't get it right every time. But don't let grace, don't let grace become your bed. One of my friends, he has this phrase, he said, grace makes a great safety net and a terrible hammock. Grace is great to catch me when I mess up. Grace is not so great a place to just yeah, get comfortable in and lazy in. No, no, I want to move myself to action. I want to stir my heart to do something. Maybe that's you right now. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, we're going to sing the song, Make Room, which we love to sing around here. And I'm just asking you to make room in your heart and in your life for whatever Jesus wants to do in you. But if you hear him say something, man, do it today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, as you give us today everything that we need for life and godliness, may you create in us a generous heart that we could do the same for others. And Lord, where the enemy comes to whisper to us that we should not forgive somebody else or help somebody else because of who they are or what they've done, God, I pray that you would give us a heart of gratitude because when we didn't deserve it, you forgave us. And when the enemy comes and he wants to 
twist life circumstances into the reason we can't trust you to provide or to be enough or to be good enough. Oh God, give us the strength to stand firm on our day of trial and testing that you could look down on us and be so proud of us. We love you. We praise you, Father, for your goodness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name.